Hi guys, welcome back to the JPS Education Portal. My name is Luke Twyford and I'm joined today by Mackenzie Baker alongside very special guest, Dr. Gary Mendoza, who is actually the Managing Director of Stages of Change, as you can see in the background. Um, and that is a mentor school that focuses on helping personal trainers and nutritionists to become better equipped at achieving permanent lifestyle change with their clients. So pretty much the perfect guest for this month on the Edge Portal, where we will be discussing motivation and behavior change. So guys, before we get stuck into things, I'd just like to briefly remind the listeners of the JPS Ultimate Evidence-Based Conference, which is coming up this August. So now is a great time to get tickets before they inevitably sell out. And seeing as we have Mackenzie here who will be presenting, I was wondering if you would be able to maybe run through what your presentation is on and how that might tie into today's topic. Mm, yeah, so I'm very excited for this and I will be honest, uh, this presentation is heavily influenced by the education that I've done with Dr. Gary, who we have here today. And basically, I'm looking at client adherence. That's really the crux of it in a nutrition coaching context. And a big part of that is whether success just comes down to, quote unquote, client obedience, or whether as coaches or practitioners, we should take a more active and responsible role in helping our clients foster commitment and motivation, thus improving their adherence and their outcomes. So I'm taking elements of uh, various frameworks such as self-determination theory uh, and using bits and bobs that I've gathered from uh, motivational interviewing and, and things like this. And I'm also packaging that up into a set of practical tips or recommendations that are going to be a little bit more easy to understand and a bit more clear as to how you can actually apply that in practice rather than just saying, oh, you know, um, going through the framework of, of uh, self-determination theory and its various, I guess, facets or components rather than just laying them out on the table. We're actually going to be going through some tips that, that actually inadvertently apply sort of those, I guess, guidelines or, or that approach. So I'm really excited for it. And uh, I think Gary, Dr. Gary here will very, uh, very much like my presentation if, if he was there in Melbourne. Sounds yeah. good. Yeah, so obviously there's going to be lots, um, a lot of great presenters there. Last year was a fantastic turnout and we're focusing on making this one even better so must definitely a must for anyone in melbourne and if you can uh travel then that's going to be uh, a really really good great experience for you guys so now really i think dr gary i think a good place to start today would be if you could tell us a bit about why behavior change is such an important concept when dealing with clients in the health and fitness industry Obviously, you have a lot of maybe novice or even kind of uh, online client, uh, online coaches, I should say, out there who work with clients and simply just assign targets and accept that should be enough to obviously drive change. Whereas in reality, we, we often find that that's not the case. So maybe you can unpack why this the whole concept is so important. Sure. Um so in my doctoral research, I trained personal trainers to deliver a weight management package. 
And so they went out into the real world and worked with clients. But part of that training was uh, psychometric testing to see whether clients were psychologically ready to lose weight. And so I recruited all these PTs from around the UK and they went out. And whenever a client joined them, male client, I said, right, I want you to psychometrically test them to see if they're ready to change. And what was fascinating about it was we discovered that a lot of people will take on a personal training a trainer but they're not actually psychologically ready to change and that was actually a bit of a surprise because you would assume that if someone comes to you and says oh I want to sign up to your program I'm going to pay you however much to train me you'd think well they must be ready to change it you know they must be ready to train must be ready to make that change but they actually weren't and what I found from the data was I could predict which clients would fail in terms of weight management would drop out of the program and what have you and so in the second part of the research, I said to them, right, you can take clients on, but you've got to screen them first to make sure they're psychologically ready. And so we had a screening criteria for that. And when we use that, we then got an 86% success rate. So it clearly demonstrated that you need your clients to be psychologically ready to change if ultimately they are going to get the outcome they desire. And so that research was repeated in New Zealand with the Maori and South Pacific Islanders, and we got exactly the same results, 86% success rate, I mean, identical. So it clearly shows that it doesn't matter what the cultural background, people need to be psychologically ready to change before they are likely to be successful um, in losing weight and kind of getting fit, whatever. Mm -hmm. And you spoke about, obviously, that psychometric testing with clients. Now, is that something that is um going to be possible for let's say you've just got a generic personal trainer or kind of coach is that something that you'd kind of uh advise looking into something that we should be thinking about when taking on new clients especially when they've got these kind of fat loss or um more uh, goals that require a bit more attention if if their goal is weight management weight loss then i would definitely say screen them but the key thing about that is it's all very well screening and going oh yeah, this person's ready, this person's not. You also need the tools to help the ones that you assess that are not ready. And that was part of the problem because when I did this in New Zealand, the Manawatu region decided they were going to adopt that for public health across the region. But from an ethical standpoint, they couldn't turn people away. So it was all very well screening people. But then the question was, well, what do you do if they're not ready? And so this is why I kind of learned motivational interviewing, cognitive behavioral therapy and so on, because you need the skills to take those clients that aren't ready and help them move to a point where they are ready. And if you've got that, you've then kind of got the complete package as a trainer, because you can kind of pretty much help anyone at that point. And I guess that sounds like it might also be a bit of a hard sell. Let's say you've got a client who comes in and, maybe doesn't realize that they're not ready so let's say they're they're for want of a better term like failing this this test is that something you have to kind of frame it in a certain way are you going to have to be like look we have to hold off on these goals right here these immediate goals because we need to get you to a position where you can actually see through a plan or is it there a more subtle way where you don't even have to frame it like that yeah you never talk about these tests as being pass or fail it's just telling people where they are on a continuum of change. And if you explain to the, if you do a good job of explaining what these tests are showing, 
for most people, they'll buy in because very often they're coming to you having tried three, four, five, six diets anyway and wondering why they failed each time. And so part of that was very likely the fact that really, although they were going into it, they were going into it for the wrong reason. Mm. So, you know, it's maybe work colleagues or somebody said, oh, you're putting on a bit of weight or you're not looking very good or whatever. And maybe they weren't motivated in themselves, but because peer pressure, that's why they joined the program. So they need to be there for themselves and they need to be psychologically ready. But it's not a pass or fail thing at all. It, mm. it should be, okay, this is where you are and I'm going to help you move to here kind of thing. And what's obviously I know it's going to uh, depend based on where, as you said, where the individual is on that continuum. But what might it look like trying to get them to the point where they're ready? Is that can that be quite a long process? Is it something that for some people might just might be really quick or it really depends? Can be really quick. You can't predict because obviously we're all different. I mean, that's kind of the joy of human life, I guess. But um no, I mean, sometimes it could just literally be a 20-minute, half-hour conversation. Motivational interviewing is very much about it's a it's a comfortable conversation, or it should be if you know what you're doing, but it's got direction, it's got purpose, and really it's all about helping the individual discover their own reasons. And so sometimes that can be really quick, and other times it might mean we've got to invest in a couple of sessions before we really get into the nutritional side of things and the exercise activity side of things. But it is very much uh, take the individual and see where they go with it. But often it's a voyage of discovery for them as well, because they often will find out things that they didn't realize once, mm. once they kind of start talking. It's a bit like, I'm kind of loath to use the word, but it is to some degree, a degree, some therapy. It's like finding out what's going on in your head around weight management and weight loss and, and what your kind of own beliefs about it are what what kind of stories do you tell yourself when you're trying to lose weight get fit mm-hmm. yeah do you mind if i jump in there because gary yeah, said something really cool um you mentioned being motivated for the wrong reason can often sort of in a way indicate or correlate with and maybe you could clarify that actually too um, correlate with not actually being ready to change. So you mentioned, you know, someone said something at work uh, and it kind of associated with this idea of that being the wrong reason. Um, so could you maybe elaborate on the different forms of motivation and why that's important as far as readiness to change and then someone's ability to accept and commit to that process? Sure. So if you look at self-determination theory, it looks at motivation as being on a continuum. And at one end of that is extrinsic motivation. So extrinsic, as it kind of, you can pick up from the language, it's external, it's other people. So this is the type of motivation that actually a lot of trainers rely on because we train trainers that way. We tell trainers, right, you're the exercise specialist. You learn all about exercise, get them in the gym, beast them, tell them what to do, tell them to get a grip, they're lazy, whatever. And then offer and rewards if they finish it. That is all extrinsic motivation. Now, it will work to a degree. And the one place that we use it all the time, and it is effective, is in the military. Because you need that type of motivation in the military. You can't be waiting for somebody to decide whether it's really for them. They've just got to crack on and get on with it. But for, for, for your average client, it's not a very effective form of motivation at all. 
So then we, we slide along the scale and at the other end is what we call intrinsic motivation. And that's the type of motivation we want our clients to have. Because if you've got intrinsic motivation, as it kind of implies, it's coming from within. It's because you want to do it. It's because you're enjoying the journey. And so you're kind of finding that all the time. So on those days where you're thinking, oh, sod it, I'm just going to eat rubbish today and eat some junk and have a takeaway or whatever. If you're intrinsically motivated, your own kind of self-taught, that language that we all do this, we all say to ourselves, oh, yeah, it's okay to do that and I'll have a day off and blah, blah. But your own language when you're intrinsically motivated would be, yeah, I could do that, but actually that would undermine my program and I won't get to where I want to be. So we, as trainers, coaches, nutritionists, we want to build intrinsic motivation in our clients. And we do that by making, by educating, so teaching so that people are making informed choices you want to make it enjoyable as well i mean that's quite important it should be an enjoyable journey if it, if it feels like blooming purgatory doing this every day you ain't going to do it for long and so finding that intrinsic motivation is really important and you mm. can draw in another model of uh, motivation around this which is the combi model which comes from the behavior change wheel from mitchy and in in that, they when they look at behavior change, the com part of com B is capability, opportunity, and motivation itself. And you need those three elements before behavior change is likely to kind of occur. So capability is the client feeling they can do it. They've maybe got the cooking skills or whatever, because often we overlook that. It's like we tell people to eat healthy, but well, actually, if they can't cook, then how do they do that? So we, we have to give them the capability. They have to be able to read a food label, they have, that type of thing. So the opportunity is, can they buy healthy foods? Do they have the income for it? Do they have the skills for that? Are, have they got support around them to kind of do that? And then finally, motivation itself. And as I've just said, we want that motivation to be intrinsic. And if you've got those three elements in place, behavior change is more likely to occur. That's really fascinating um, what you just said there. And the thing I really like there is uh, I can't remember the words exactly, but it was uh, offering choice or it was um, in a way, I can't remember the exact wording, but it was something along the lines of re decisional balance or respecting autonomy. Um, and that being a key component of this as well. So, and I think the combi model is really cool and actually a, a different or a similar idea that Josh Smith has kind of, proposed to me or he's been talking about is the golden behavior criteria where um, in order to foster a, a behavior change um, the individual has to be wanting to do it and I think respecting autonomy and providing choice is, is a big part of that rather than being prescriptive which would be uh, in my view appealing to uh, ex uh, extrinsic motivation uh, so they have to be wanting to do it. They have to be able to do it. So that's the skill and maybe the education. Um, and then also it has to be worthwhile. Um, and this can be for numerous aspects, like the client might not or the individual might not think it's worthwhile. Um, and maybe you haven't listened or asked them what they want to do and what they think is worthwhile. Um, so, yeah, I found that really fascinating. And I'd be curious to, to hear more about um, how you help un someone uncover those more intrinsic forms of motivation, um, because I understand they're not always mutually exclusive. So there's a couple of interesting words you've used there, which is autonomy 
And autonomy is so important when you're working with your clients, respecting their right to make a choice. And so offering choice, whenever, whenever you're training a client, whether it be from a fitness perspective or a nutrition perspective, you should always be able to offer choice. Sometimes you won't. Sometimes there is only one way to do something. And that's fair enough. But make that clear to the client. As far as I'm aware, the only way we can do this is da da da. And and then I always add a proviso unless you have any other ideas, because that then allows them to say, oh, yeah, but I read on Twitter that you can do this. And I saw on Instagram that blah, blah, blah. So that gives you then an opportunity to correct misunderstanding as well, because you don't want them thinking, oh, that's not the only way because I know I read this and I think I could do that. So I always put that option in. Oh, unless you have any ideas as well. Because now it feels collaborative. And if it feels collaborative to the client, they're kind of more likely to do it. And it kind of goes back to what type of motivation are you using? Because if you're using extrinsic motivation, you're most probably working with your clients in what I would call a one-up situation. In other words, I'm a bit better than you because I'm the expert and I can tell you what to do. That is not a scenario you want when you're working with your clients. It should be equal status and you're guiding your client your role as a coach is to guide your client provide information where they need it get them back on track from time to time when they need that and generally provide encouragement that way it shouldn't be my way or the highway so it's really important that you kind of you are respecting autonomy at all time because that in itself will kind of help people make change so autonomy is is crucial in any, in any coaching scenario. And, and the biggest thing most people have to overcome from a coach's perspective is their writing reflex. We've all got it. So you, you're sat there chatting to somebody and they go, yeah, well, really, the best way to lose fat is the keto diet and blah, blah. Your writing reflex will be like, no, 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 no. What it is, is what you should be doing is this because keto does this and blah, 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 blah. That's your writing reflex. That's that kind of that almost somewhere deep inside you going, I can't let them get away with that. I'm going to tell them what's right. But you kind of have to control that because if you don't, then you you are going back to a one up relationship where it's like, no, I'm going to tell you what to do. And one of the and, and I know some people listening to this will go, yeah, but that's my job. I'm an expert. I should be telling people what to do. You should be informing people and allowing them to make choice. But if you are telling people what to do all the time, they will become reliant on that. And so now when they have a bad day or they're thinking, oh, sod it, I'm going to have the takeaway or I'm going to have a bottle of wine tonight, don't care. They'll be looking to you for the answer. They'll come back to you the next day. Oh, well, I don't know why. Why did I do that? What, what was that? They'll never look to solve the problem for themselves because they're always looking to you for the answer. And ultimately, and I say this to all my coaching clients, my, my job in life is to get rid of you. And they always look at me strange. They're like, what do you mean by that? I said, well, I want to get to a point where you know what you're doing, you've reached your goal, and you totally understand it. You don't need me anymore. All good coaches should actually be trying to get rid of their clients. You'll get loads more back because that client will go away and go, that guy was the best. You should really go to him. So for every client that you get to that point, you're getting back in spades anyway, so don't worry about that. But making that client self-sufficient is really powerful because then they make good choices because they want to make good choices. So then we're kind of full circle. We're back to 
they're intrinsically motivated. That's really, really interesting. And something else I was just thinking about, obviously, with when it comes to the initial behavior change, like you said, the goal is obviously to, to get the clients to the point where they're, they're self-sufficient and they don't need us as co coaches. But from someone who's kind of spent time, obviously, uh, kind of studying with your, your PhD and whatnot, maybe something to, to think about or something you could go into is what the research says about which uh, models, we'll call them, are kind of more or less effective at keeping your clients um, in that position, if that makes sense. So, um, yeah, yeah. Yep. So let's say you use self-determination theories that kind of uh, what's the difference between that and maybe combi, like you mentioned, or which which approaches tend to be more or less effective. Well, well Josh, meant, uh, Mac mentioned another one there, which is decisional balance. Decisional balance comes from Janice and Mann, and they hypothesize that when people make any change in their life, they take a balance sheet approach. And they, they kind of work out the pros and the cons for change. If the pros for change outweigh the cons, you're likely to make the change. If the pros and cons are about the same, that's what we would describe as ambivalence. And motivational interviewing is designed to actually resolve ambivalence. And then if the cons outweigh the pros, well, they won't do it. And so understanding where your client is on that balance sheet is really quite important. And one of the psychometric tests that I use is called the decisional balance inventory. And that weighs up the pros and cons. And what I found was not only do the pros have to outweigh the cons, there has to be enough distance between the two before people are, are successful at making a change. So it's no good having your pros just a little bit higher than your cons, because what will tend to happen is you'll slide back to ambivalence. But if you've got enough distance between the two, then you're more likely to be successful. So decisional balance is really important. Then you've got the stages of change model from Prochatska and Di Clementi, and they hypothesize that change comes on a kind of spectrum from pre-contemplation which is where you're not thinking about change at all you're not interested in it and it was first done with smoking behavior so if anybody knows any smokers you most probably know somebody that's a pre-contemplator they'd be the one that if you were to say to them you really want to give up smoking you're going to get cancer and heart attack and blah blah they'd just be like don't give a toss not interested they're a pre-contemplator you could give them information all day they will not take it on board they then move to contemplation, maybe because some event in their life happens or whatever. And contemplation, you can kind of think of being similar to ambivalent. You're now your pros and cons are about the same. So you're contemplating, you're thinking about it, but you could go either way. And there is a real danger that people think, oh, well, they're in contemplation. If I have a word with them, they'll be good. They'll be good to go. That's not the case. Sometimes what you say to a client will actually push them back the other way. So you have to really kind of understand what's going on there. They then move into preparation, which is that's a short stage in terms of it's about six to 12 weeks generally. And so now, as it's considered, they're preparing to change and then ultimately they move into action. And then at some point and action can last for six months to a year, they kind of move into maintenance. So maintenance is where the behavior has become regular and normalized so it's slowly becoming habitual 
the thing about that model is and the most important aspect of it which everybody tends to not want to talk about but it is the elephant in the room is relapse you can relapse at any point and you can relapse from action right back to pre-contemplation so somebody can go one day from being super great yeah i'm doing it all i'm i'm getting out there i'm getting fit i'm i'm changing my diet blah blah to the next day i'm not interested i'm not doing it so they've come from one end of the spectrum right back to the other now relapse is a natural part of the human process of behavior change we all relapse. anyone that's ever learned to ride a bike it's very rare you jump on a bike and ride it first time you normally kind of either got your parents running along behind you holding the seat so as to give you some type of balance or you've got training wheels on and before you actually become proficient at riding a bike you're likely to have fallen off five six seven eight nine ten times however each time you fell off the bike you learned something something in your brain said right next time i do this i'll do it slightly different it's the same with any behavior change each relapse teaches you something new we know that in smoking it's rare that somebody is successful giving up smoking first time. It will normally take five or six attempts and each attempt is teaching them something new. Same in weight management. It's the same in fitness. How many people listening to this have tried to get fit before? Joined a gym, had a trainer. Odds are they've done it two, three, four, five times before they've kind of figured out what's the best way for them. Same with diet. We'll have tried however many different diets very often when people come to a coach to a nutritionist they've already tried god knows how many different diets and so you're just like the next one in the line and if you don't do something different you will be the next one in the very long line because they will carry on trying different things and so that relapse is really important and so you have to tell clients when they first come come to you at some point in this program you will relapse. You're going to have a day where it all goes pear-shaped and you're just going to say, sod it, I'm not doing it. I'm eating whatever I like and I'm drinking whatever I want to. As long as you accept that that's part of the process and don't beat yourself up, it's actually a good thing because I always say to my clients, sit down at the end of the day and just say to yourself, what could I have done different today to stop that happening in the future? Now, that might be a bit of meal planning, it might be a bit better time management, but there'll be something in there that you should be able to pick up on and go, right, next time, that's what I'm going to do. Now that relapse has been really valuable because you've now learned, you've now got a new skill. So as long as you treat it that way, you're okay. And that kind of brings in another psychological theory, which is taken from cognitive behavioral therapy, which is the what the hell effect. And it was discovered by two researchers in California, well, not so much discovered as coined in terms of a phrase, but you can actually find it in the scientific literature, what the hell effect. And it's the way people deal with failure or relapse. And so they have the relapse and they go, ah, what the hell, I'm going to finish the pizza, I'm going to have a few more beers. And then they do that, then they beat themselves up because they've done that. And then they go, ah, oh, sod it, well, I'll, I'll just carry on for this weekend. And at the weekend, I'll kick off again. And then the weekend comes and by then they've had a rubbish week and they've been eating chocolate and they've been having the beers and what have you. Oh, well, I know what, I'll start again on Monday. And how many times have you heard people say that? You know, oh, well, I've fallen off the wagon a bit, but I'm going to start again Monday. 
And so they've gone into this really downward spiral of the what the hell effect. And the way to deal with it, actually, the research shows is don't beat yourself up. Accept that it's part of human nature. Guilt is not the way to manage it. It's look at it positively. Look at it as a learning experience. And then you'll be able to move on straight away. And so teaching your clients that relapse will happen is really important. And it might seem like an odd thing to do. First time you meet a client, you start talking to them about, right, when you fall off the wagon, when the, when the program goes wrong, this is what I want you to do. And at that point, they'll most probably go, well, that's not going to happen. I'm, I'm, I'm game on now. This is the one. You're the, you're the trainer that's going to kind of get me to where I want to be. And they're suffering from another kind of psychological um, thing, which is called barrier underestimation. When we start something new, we always underestimate how difficult it will be. And it's like we seem to forget all the other times we've tried to get fit, tried to eat healthy. It's like the brain just remembers the good bits and gets rid of the bad parts. And so we come into a program suffering from barrier underestimation, thinking, oh, it's going to be dead easy. And so when you say to the client, oh, you're going to fail at some point, but that's part of the process, don't worry. They're like, no, no, that won't happen this time. Blah, blah. But it's still really important to talk to them about that because then when they do have the failure, it's a lot easier for you to go, do you remember when we first met up and first started, we talked about this and how you were going to manage it? And somewhere in their brain, they'll go, oh, yeah, I do kind of vaguely remember that. So, yeah, maybe I should. So it just helps you as a coach, actually, when when a relapse happens because you've already planted the seeds of how they're going to cope with it. Mm. And when you're, say, looking, uh, let's say you've got a new client, is there, you talk about kind of uh, screening them beforehand. Do you go in or do you, would you look at the results and be like, look, I think this is a client that is more likely to go down this way. I'm going to kind of be, be prepared by focusing on A, B and C. Or is it a case of like, I'm going to be almost reactive to an extent and just be like, look, it's a new client. I'm going to obviously do my screening but then i'm going to approach it as as if it's uh, an open book i'll take it as it comes what's what's the process like like there definitely the second approach i mean mac mac will tell you when you when you motivational interview you can't really go in with any kind of pre pre-planned or whatever because you just do not know what it's going to be all all the psychometric tests have told you is this client's here and i really want to help her move forward and so the first part of motivational interviewing is engagement, kind of getting on board with the client, finding out a bit about them. And then once we kind of got good engagement, we can then move to focus and focus is really finding out what the problem is in terms of people would often think, well, surely the focus is if I'm working with a client who wants what focus is weight management. No, it's not. That's far too broad a title. You can break weight that weight management down into nutrition, activity, exercise, but then you can break nutrition down into God knows how many components in terms of is it food labels, is it meal prep, is it, you know, is it understanding macros, is it micronutrients? Nutrition is a huge subject. And so we have to get very clear on where the focus is. And once we've got focus, what we're going to work on, we can now start to evoke reasons for change. And that's a skill in itself in motivational interviewing. It's helping the client find their own reasons why they want to do something. And Mac talked about it in that other model that you were saying there, Mac, about like 
people wanting to yeah. do it, what are the reasons to do it, these type of things. Yeah, that was the um, golden behavior criteria, which I'm quite sure has a lot of crossover or it's sort of derived from the combi, B, I feel. Um, and yeah, like I, I think, you know, you are as a practitioner or PT, whatever, you're the expert at the nutrition or at understanding training. And that's okay to be the expert because that's what you're trained in. But I think it's important to remember that the client is the expert at their own life and their own ambivalence and their own motivation. So I think it's okay to come into, say, a consult, for an example, with a new client and in your mind have what you think might be an appropriate path for that client based on, say, what they uh, their results from their psychometric testing or um, you know their initial forms or whatever. I think that's fine. But when you go through the process of opening that collaborative discussion, talking about their ambivalence, asking the right questions, and going through the decisional balance, things might change. And I've got a perfectly good example uh, that Gary was heavily involved in, and that was three years ago, uh, Dr. Gary took the time out of his day to jump on a call with me to discuss whether I should do my master's in sport and exercise nutrition or dietetics. And what did we do? We went and did the decisional bound. And guess what? I went and did the Masters in Sport and Exercise Nutrition, and I finished it about a month ago. Uh, well done. That's great Thank news. You. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Very yeah, I mean, that, that's per it kind of shows that it does work. And, and I agree with Mac. Nobody knows themselves better than themselves. Bill Miller, who's one of the founders of Motivational Interviewing, he's, he's, he's forever saying, you don't have all the answers. The client has the best answers. You often think you do. You often think, oh, yeah, I know how to solve this. But you don't, because if the client doesn't buy into that, then actually that answer is useless. So you have to help the client find what the best answer for them is. Mm. I definitely, yeah, something that, even I've seen as a relatively new coach uh, of, of about two years is that there's a lot of, um, or coaches, personal trainers tend to forget that it is more of that collaboration. It's not, it's not a dictatorship. It never was. It's, it's collaboration. You're helping an individual and that comes with kind of understanding them and not just kind of screaming orders. So it's definitely uh, makes a lot of sense. Um, but on that same note, obviously, there are probably a lot of uh, personal trainers, coaches who are maybe new to this whole concept and might be hearing a lot about kind of the literature and there, there is a lot to it. Like I know for, for you guys who have clearly got a lot of experience um, with a lot of these different models, but is there anything you would suggest as like a, a place to start? Let's say we've got a new personal trainer kind of new to the, the whole concept of behavior change. Is there anything that you're like, okay, let's, focus on as a as a starting point focus on learning about this get really comfortable with with that and that's going to act as a good kind of framework to then build on and get better at, at the whole whole idea yeah if you work in nutrition and fitness i would say get this book it's cheap it's dead easy to read and you can get it on audiobook as well motivation i've read it nutrition and fitness it's really basic. 
it explains what MI is, but also explains other models as well. It talks about behavior change. It talks about the, the stages of change model and some other ones, but it's it's really well written and it just gives you practical examples as well. So it's a real good grounding for any fitness or nutrition professional, I think. I mean, Mac, you've most probably got that, haven't you? Yeah, I, I read it when, I, uh, when we first did our bit of education three year three odd years ago um yeah. and it's actually funny because i cited that book in my uh, uh uebc presentation last year and the presentation for this year already has that reference in it so there's numerous times the thing i really like about it is it's grounded in self-determination theory like i've really realized lately actually how much crossover there is with sdt self-determination theory and motivational interviewing the way i see it is um self-determination theory is a, well, a theory but then mi is the way we can actually apply self-determination theory in practice and if i was to provide my two cents on what is a really good place to start if you're you know relatively young in, in the coaching industry the things that really helped me was understanding three key i guess principles and that was autonomy competence and relatedness and I think if you understand what those things, th those three things are, that really, for me, formed the crux of how I approach talking with clients and guiding them. So that would be my, I guess, two cents there. I, I did a, I did a webinar recently, which was all about, it wasn't about psychological models per se. It was all about the effect that you have as a coach. So it picks up on all the points you just pointed out there, Matt, in terms of the way a, a coach behaves has a direct impact on whether their client will change. And so as a coach, you have to become, you need to become very self-aware. You need to understand the way you talk, your language, the way you interact, your body language with the client and everything. Because what you do as a coach directly impacts how successful your client is likely to be. One of the biggest things you learned, because I did counselling as well, one of the biggest things you learn in counselling is you need kind of self-awareness all the time. You kind, of, you kind of look at yourself as much as you do the client, to be honest, to see what you're doing. So be, becoming self-aware is really important. And so, you know, how much do you respect autonomy? How judgmental are you? How caring are you? Because we know that caring is really important. Do you genuinely care for your client's well-being or do you just see them as some sort of cash cow that you're going to kind of kick out the door at some point? So I, I think there's a, a big element of that. Mm. I guess that really comes down to why, as well to the audience, that why why you become a coach in the first place. Like, I think the ones or the I know it's as an industry, it's it's a place that coaches don't tend to last long. I think it's um, the average kind of uh, length of time a coach spends in the industry is, is about a year. And obviously it comes down to like full circle back to motivation again. Like at the end of the day, if a coach is extrinsic, extrinsically motivated, uh, motivated, sorry, wants to have big Instagram following, get themselves um, kind of a nice, uh, a nice income through there. It's obviously less likely to, uh, to go where you want it to go. It's going to, it's going to be um, difficult to sustain. Whereas if you're 
intrinsically motivated, you want to uh, help others, which uh, I'm presuming that would come under um, intrinsic motivation, even though it's not directly in yourself. Um, but at the end of the day, you're more likely to be kind of that, that empathy, showing that empathy is going to be, you got more um, invested really into what you're doing. So definitely something to uh, think about as, as coaches, uh, yeah, as potential uh, people that want to be coaches, trying to be coaches, or if you're already on the in, uh, in the industry. Well, you mentioned a really yeah. important word there, which was empathy. Mm. And empathy is the single biggest predictor of a successful outcome in counselling. So Terry Moyers, who's one of the leading researchers in the world in motivational interviewing, found that a, a counsellor's level of empathy was the biggest single predictor of a successful outcome for their client over and above their experience, their level of qualification, everything else. So empathy is the one thing you have to have and you have to have it in spades, basically. And in fact, Terry Moyers is now looking into, can we screen prospective coaches, counsellors for their level of empathy? Because some people clearly shouldn't go into that profession because they haven't got sufficient empathy. And I see some trainers, when you see trainers posting things like, you know, somebody will post up in Facebook or Instagram, well, I've got this client and they're a bit awkward, they're not getting results, blah, blah. And you'll see some trainers, we'll just tell them to get a grip and give them this and blah, blah. It's like, clearly that coach has got no empathy and shouldn't be in the business in the first place. If that's the way they're approaching it, then that they're they're doomed to failure basically so empathy is really important and we know you can teach people to improve empathy as well providing you've got some there in the at the start empathy is a skill that can be worked on matt i'm i'm so glad that the, the empathy word has come up and Another thing, interestingly, is that uh, this paper was by Wilkinson and colleagues in 2017. Um, uh, I believe, I can't remember the details exactly off the top of my head, but I believe they found that uh, health practitioners with lower empathy experienced a higher rate of burnout. So why is that? You know, practitioners, they get frustrated at their clients. They're sort of the tough love coaches who tell them to pull their head in. You know, they're not getting client results. They're not building strong, meaningful connections with their clients. They're not helping people. And all of a sudden, they're frustrated and they're angry. So what happens after a few years? Well, they leave the industry. And it comes back to that empathy that empathy thing. And I think there is definitely still very much this day, these days, and probably more so these days than even, you know, sort of in my time in the industry, um, there's this trend of like being a tough love coach. You know, it's still about, oh, if a client doesn't do it, tell them to pull their head in. You know, you, you don't want it bad enough, kind of the shame thing. Now, we know that shame is not actually going to help someone change. Okay. And one reason for that is because if you, oh, you're a failure, you're soft, stop being lazy. If they start to internalize that belief that I am a failure, then they're more prone to actually self-sabotage because they anticipate that they're going to fail anyway. So rather than going through the full effort of giving it a, you know, a true, honest, everything you got red hot crack, they're going to stop short by finding a reason to fail. And, you know, that is, self-sabotage because again a self-sabotage can be due to a fear of failure and it it ties in really well with bandura's theory of self-efficacy 
because one of the things my research highlighted was as people are successful with losing weight, their level of self-efficacy increases. There's a direct correlation between weight loss and self-efficacy. And so as a coach, if you're kind of giving your example, Matt, there of the coach that's kind of tough love and what have you, self-efficacy at best will be staying the same. The odds are it's dropping off a cliff because all that type of language is just saying to somebody, you're useless. You don't know what you're doing. You're not, you need to just kind of get a grip. You know, you've done this in the past. That is not building self-efficacy. Whereas if you're a coach that's got empathy and respects autonomy, now you're building self-efficacy. Every week that goes by as the client achieves little steps, their self-efficacy is incrementally increasing. And it kind of ties in quite well with capability because their capability is rising as well. And it pulls in something else that's really important, which is goal setting. And so I'm a big believer you need, if you look at all the research for successful weight management, most successful programs have goal setting as part of it. So you want long-term goals, six month year, but I always say to people, you want weekly goals. You want little things that people can do because each week then when they achieve those, that's building capability. It's building self-efficacy. And so that they, as the weeks go by, they've had all these little successes and now we're going to, we're going in the right direction. So you're building your client up. Yeah. It's, it's very interesting thing is this building your client up because I've actually heard really recently um, some people say things like, you know, coaches, they're getting too soft these days uh, by not pulling your client up on their shit, you're doing them a disservice. So basically being a tough love coach and, you know, telling them like it is and calling them what, you know, oh, you're being lazy or something. And whilst I think it's important to have a level of bluntness, it should never come with this put down or shameful. Using shame is not effective to create change. And it, like Gary said there, um, it's only going to likely send self-efficacy off a cliff. When we don't feel confident that we can do something, we're going to be less motivated to do it. Like, like think about it. If you're shit at something, you're not going to want to do it. Uh, whereas if there's a hobby or a sport or something that you're good at, you're probably going to enjoy it a little bit more and be more motivated to keep going. But then if you had someone come around who's, you know, better than you or um, someone just tell you that you're, you're not as good as you think, you're actually really shit, then obviously you're not going to be very motivated to keep going. You're going to want to pull the pin and go, oh, I'll find a new skill to learn or a new hobby. Same sort of situation. I think you should always be honest with your client. And it kind of comes back to talking about relapse. It's like there are going to be weeks where it goes wrong. They might not achieve that weekly goal. But I always say to my clients, don't worry about that because now we're going to learn something. Why did we not achieve that goal? What went wrong? What should we do different? And so I'm not looking at as pass or fail. I'm looking at, okay, we're there. We want to kind of step up a bit. What do you need to do different? I always use it as a, rather than going to the club, well, you're useless. Why didn't you do that? You said you were going to. I always look at it from a perspective of, okay, why do you think that didn't work then? What do you think we need to do different? And I always use the we language because I want them to feel like I'm supporting them. So it, it's a case of you should address it. You, you don't just bury your head in the sand because things will go wrong. But how you address it 
is really important. And, you, and you've got one or two options. You can kind of beat people up about it or you can be collaborative and learn from it. And so clearly mm. being collaborative and learn from it is, is really important. I'm clear from the outset with my clients that if you manage to get fit, lose weight, whatever your goal is, that is down to you. It's not, it's got nothing to do with me. I can give you all the information in the world. I can provide support when you need it, but ultimately you're the one that's got to do it. And so if they come back to me the following week and go, oh, well, I couldn't do that. That went wrong. It's like, well, that's down to you. So why is that? What went wrong? What do you think we could do different? And they get quite used to that process of exploring what went wrong. How could I do it different? And so they become problem solvers themselves. And so what you'll then often find is, like when I've had a client for six months, say, they will often come back to me and go, oh, I did that goal and I got halfway through and it went wrong. But I thought about it and I tried this and I did that. They're problem solving for themselves. And that shows you that they're growing because now they've problem solved for themselves. Their self-efficacy has increased because now they're thinking, wow, I figured that out for myself. And we all feel good about that when we solve a problem ourselves. Mm, yeah, uh, I agree. You you want to be honest. What I don't agree with is being honest in like a, a shameful way. Um, and yeah. equally, I think brushing it under the rug, oh, you know, you slipped up. Um, oh, we won't worry about it. It's not that bad. Like stop stressing about it. Kind of just brushing it under the rug. I don't think that respects relatedness. Uh, or maybe I'm thinking of the wrong aspect there, but it doesn't respect, like the client's not going to feel heard and understood if you are brushing what they think is significant under the rug. So, but then if you've empowered them with the self-efficacy to be able to problem solve, you're actually finding a solution. You're finding a solution to the problem so you can reduce the risk of it happening again. And that is also moving the client away from needing you. So you're getting rid of the client, which again, should be the ultimate goal. And I don't, or I use a technique from cognitive behavioral therapy with some clients because you'll get some clients don't like goal, goal setting because they've kind of had bad experience with it because they've always felt like failures when they haven't achieved their goals. And so very often, certainly for the weekly targets, I will use experiments. And, and you're like, what the hell are you on about? I was like, well, we're going to set up an experiment. And the experiment might be, I... My hypothesis is so you kind of, and a hypothesis is just what I think will happen. It's a fancy word for that. So all experiments have a hypothesis, then they have a method, and then they have an outcome. So we kind of how we measure the data, if you like. So my hypothesis might be if I eat breakfast every morning, I'll have more energy through the day. And so the experiment might be the actual what we're going to do would be eat breakfast it could be scrambled egg on toast porridge whatever doesn't really matter but we're going to try breakfast every morning and we're going to measure our energy levels by scoring it on one to ten whatever they come back at the end of the week and they go well it was okay but this went wrong um i said okay so we weren't able to test our hypothesis but obviously the experiment is wrong we need to kind of do it a little bit different and they go oh yeah okay well what i might try then for breakfast is this this and this and so now they don't feel like failures. So they don't come back now and go, oh, I couldn't do that. I didn't achieve that goal of breakfast five days this week. It's like, no, the experiment went wrong. We're going to redesign it. And they often really like that idea of, oh, no, we're using a bit of science and some fancy words. And we're just setting up experiments every week. And some of them are going to work. Some of them aren't. 
but and that's directly from cognitive behavioral therapy mm. i really love sorry sorry, sorry. No, go, 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 go. i really love experiments and or doing this experiment thing to the client because i think another benefit of it is that it can help clients overcome ambivalence so for example using the breakfast option a client might be like i know that if i eat breakfast i'll probably feel good and I'll probably have more energy for my morning training session. And I'll probably be less, you know, ravenous, which means like the cookie jar at the work office there with the with the coffee setup will be less appealing. They know all these positive things, but they might be ambivalent to say, for example, having breakfast because, oh, if I have breakfast, maybe I will like gain a bunch of weight or maybe I will this or that. Or they have these, these internal fears around that, even if they're irrational or not. So by running an experiment, you can find a sort of a stepping stone. Okay, you're not willing to just go and throw breakfast right at it straight away, but what is something that you're comfortable with trying as an experiment? And it might, you might, you know, do some back and forth and it might come to, well, I'm comfortable in having a protein shake and a piece of fruit uh, when I would have breakfast um, and only doing that for the next three days. So they might be comfortable with just trying that. And at the end of that, it's like, well, what happened? And it's sort of that meme from, um, not that meme, that scene in um, the movie where there's the Asian guy and he's like, what did you die? And you kind of reflect upon it. And it's like, well, the positives happened. Those things that you were fearful of happening probably didn't happen. So now what are you comfortable in trying now? And slowly you're running little experiments that are moving that person towards the thing that they really know is probably going to be best for them, which would be just to have a regular freaking breakfast. But they're not willing to, willing to go right there straight away. So, you know, you don't throw a, a goal at them that is something that they're not willing to do. Remember, willing, able, want, wanting, able, and worthwhile. They might not be wanting to just have the normal breakfast yet, but you can start with something that they are willing to try and go from there. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's language again. It's like experiment. It doesn't sound permanent. So it's like, well, yeah, I'm willing to give it a go. So it's a psychology of language. So that, and then the other thing is when they do it, we're building self-efficacy because when they find it works over two, three days, their little level of self-efficacy, that meter goes up a bit because it's like, oh, that's effective. So I'll stick with that. But now we've built in a bit of kind of self-efficacy and capability because now they found something they can do that they like. And so it's all... It's all the same models, and I find this whenever I talk about this subject, you pull in bits from all over the place, but actually the end goal is very similar. And correct me if I'm wrong, but from what I'm hearing with both of what you're saying with the whole experiment idea is maybe focusing on like the approach aspect of things. So when you're setting the goals, maybe um like focusing what you can do as opposed to taking away how how effective uh is that or how ineffective would things like okay i'm gonna i'm gonna stop uh, eating this food or i'm gonna stop snacking like what's what's the um the kind of discrepancy between the two you don't want to set goals that are negative so you don't i you don't want goals that are i am not gonna do this i'm gonna stop doing this you want goals that are I'm going to try this. I'm going to achieve this. So the way you word goals and what you look is really important. You should always focus on positive aspects, not negative, because it will have a, the reverse effect to what you're trying to achieve in terms of self-efficacy capability. 
So always try to focus on positive outcomes. I always say to people, when you're setting up to new trainers, when you're setting up goals, rather than saying to people, right, what you've got to do is stop eating chocolate and don't eat this. And don't, I always say, set goals where you're going to do things. So it will be, I'm going to eat breakfast. I'm going to drink more water. They're all positive things that you can add on. And so it, it, the, 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 the view is the other way. We're looking onwards and upwards as opposed to or oh, what's behind me and what have I got to stop so yeah the language is really important in coaching yeah really really interesting and definitely an easy fix when it comes I say fix an easier like way to um kind of uh, help with help with change with clients and it's yes yeah, such a simple thing that we can we can do as coaches so easy place to start um, guys, before we think about wrapping things up, I just wanted to quickly ask if anyone had anything to add. And if not, Dr. Gary, maybe if you wanted to um, give us a rundown in a bit more detail about stages of change and why uh, coaches or nutritionists should head over to you um, to help kind of, yeah, to help really with uh, behavior change with their clients. Sure. Okay. So if you go to my website, above my head here, stagesofchange.co.uk, if you go to the resources section, you will find a ton of resources there. They're all free. There's loads of webinars, PDFs, whatever. So a lot of the stuff that we've discussed today, you will find information there. So a lot of free resources. Um, and then I deliver the motivational interviewing course that Matt did God, was a few years ago now, wasn't it, Matt? about three and a half years ago now <laughs> yeah is it that long where's time gone i know Jeez, yeah, we're so, all getting old yeah. eh <laughs> it happens to all of us yeah so the motivational interviewing workshop next one's on the 6th of august and that's live over zoom so over kind of three weekends for about two three hours on a sunday so time wise for you guys over there it'll be i think about six in the evening so mm -hmm. that works for you so like I say, that's live over Zoom. Um, and then there's a couple of e-learning workshops that you can do self-paced. There's an introduction to behavior change, which covers a lot of the stuff that we've talked about today in terms of decisional balance, the stages of change model, and that's all e-learning. Um, and then there's the advanced behavior change, which is a lot of the cognitive behavioral therapy techniques that I've been talking about today to kind of build on the skills from the MI workshop. Awesome. So definitely a must look for coaches all around the world, not just here in Australia, but obviously we have uh, a lot of guys in the UK and the US. So some really, really valuable resources over at Stages of Change. And obviously keep an eye on Dr. Gary's uh, work as well, because super, super interesting and really, really insightful. So guys, um, I just want to thank you again for, for joining us, Dr. Gary, especially thank you for making the time to speak to us and hopefully no problem. Um, everything is going well for you over in the UK. Um, Mac, thanks again for the insight as well. Looking forward to hearing from you in the UEBC. I think you've given us a good taste out of what we can expect. So, yeah, thanks, guys. Um, stay tuned to the JPS Education Portal for more content on behavior change and motivation over the month. And we will look forward to seeing you soon. Thanks, guys. Right. Thanks for inviting Thank us. Thank you, on. everyone. Thanks.